Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Yo, brother, here we are, February 25th, 2022. Uh, (laughs) It is... We were kind of talking about this earlier. It's kind of a uh, a dark day in, yeah. in the sense that uh, there's a big uh, invasion of uh, of the Ukraine by Russia that just happened last night. And I think the whole it's crazy because the whole world seems to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Right. Um, um, hold, hold on. No, I hold on. As soon as you said that, a goddamn fire truck went by. I love that. I think it's perfect. It's perfect, fucking. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. What do you mean? There's problems in the world. Listen to this. No, no, no. You're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of whisperings of the potential for World War Three happening right now. You know, and Russia seems to be a fucking bad actor. Putin seems to be a bad actor can't think of a lot of justification for what he's doing and like all of the meddling in the u.s to get a bunch of american citizens on board with it is you know we obviously we've been talking about that on this show for a long time and now it's finally kind of coming to a head and it's you know it's scary it's scary it's uh my daughter is in the uk and they're especially you know just being that much closer to it they're just especially like holy shit this is like the darkest thing to happen in europe since world war ii you know and uh, so, and, and but but what's what's crazy is that, and serendipitous for us, is that this um, this is so much a mirror for what we're talking about today, which is 1984 and George Orwell, especially in regards to you know a totalitarian regime mm-hmm. that is using disinformation mm-hmm. to justify a war. It's so funny because, you know, we've been planning to do this episode for quite some time, for a long time now. And we've talked about it and we both, you know, reread the book to prepare from back when we first started thinking about doing this episode. You know, we knew this would be a hot button episode, but as we like prepared and planned it out every day, it became more and more relevant until now. And when we're finally recording the episode, it's as relevant as it could possibly be now so what a good time to talk about this this book. Yeah. For me, I remember being in uh, eighth grade and finding out that my particular class was not going to be assigned to read 1984. And I was so bummed that I went and read it anyways. Nice. Uh, be, just because I knew it was sci-fi and I was just a little nerd kid who just loved to read. And, and uh, it blew my mind, unlike very few books had really hit me like that. And well, I think this uh, was my um, third time reading it all the way through this most recent time. And I'll tell you, it blew my mind in a f- brand new, fresh way this time. It's so spot on in so many respects to the way power works in the world. You know, when this book was most relevant for me was during um, right after 9-11 when the run up to the the Iraq war and Afghanistan, not necessarily mm-hmm. Afghanistan, but Iraq war. And I remember watching Bush and Colin Powell and them using this justification and building this like propaganda because right. that's what it was. They were oh, selling a story. 
course. they were selling a story and a giant tur- load of bullshit is what they were selling. It, and it, yeah, it turned out to be a giant load of bullshit. But I remember sitting there and flashes of the novel kept going through my head. And I kept going, you know what? The more I looked into it, the more I was like, have um, I remember all I had so many friends that were like, we got to go to war. You know, they were so like buying into it. And I was like, have you never read 1984? Have you never read this? Because this is all they do in the book. You know, you know, I was like a punk rock, hardcore metal kid at this time in my, I mean, I still am in spirit, but at this time in my life, that was like my whole identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, super anti-establishment and everything. And I remember so vividly hearing about the Patriot Act and thinking, holy fuck, that's 1984. That is literally mm. what 1984 is about. And not just the, you know, government eavesdropping on your transactions, you know, in the name of national security order and those things, but also like the way they used euphemisms to make those sinister Things they were doing seem virtuous, which again goes right back to um, 1984. And we'll get into more of that stuff as we talk about the book. I think probably we should start with just a little primer on Orwell himself uh, mm-hmm. before we get too far into it. George Orwell, real name is Eric Arthur Blair. He was born Eric Arthur Blair in wow. 1903, and he used the name George Orwell as a pen name. And so he was born a- around the turn of the 20th century, right after the turn of the 20th century, and grew up in the shadow of World War I, and then as a young man went and volunteered to participate in the Spanish Civil War, which was going on in Europe, in Spain, obviously, at that time. And in his mind, he wanted to go fight fascism, and that was his, his biggest ideal at the time was you know, trying to combat – in fact, it, it could be pretty easy to say that for the vast majority of Orwell's life, he – basically spent his time combating fascism in the way he knew best. You know, there are some stories about like things he did on his deathbed or near his death. They tarnish that image a little bit. And I'll get into that a little bit later too. But anti-fascism was really at the core of his thinking. He considered himself to be a democratic socialist, which I think right now for a lot of people here in the United States, that's sort of like a dirty word, obviously not for myself, you know, but there's this propaganda in America since. I mean, since for a long time now, but definitely since the second Iraq war and Fox News patriotism machine has turned the idea of socialism into like the big bad boogeyman of every conservative in the United States. And Which, you know, which hold on, hold on, which let's face it, we are a socialist country. Of right? course. Because we are a democratic con- socialist country. I mean, there's no question. Uh, and With social security, pr- public schools, public roads, public anything, public libraries, public, uh, yeah, you, public yeah, parks. I mean, yeah, yeah. We we have national parks. You know what I mean? We are a democratic socialism. There's yeah, no question about exactly. it. Anybody who sees it differently than that is intentionally omitting information. Yeah, and I tell people, listen, if that's the case, then don't drive on a public road, right? Don't call the police. Don't call the fire department. Don't freaking send your kids to public school. If you send your kids to public school, then you're a hypocrite. In our society, there's a ton of that. And while people are living with the benefits of that, I mean, shit, even our big capitalist corporations suck on the teat of tax dollars. Exactly. Yeah. There's no part of the American experience that's not 
infused with democratic socialism. That's a fact. If you look at like the most anti-socialist, you know, like uh, players like the Koch brothers, they suck so much money, corporate freaking welfare from yeah. America, hundreds of millions a year. Right. It's crazy. Right now it's Elon Musk is, you know, uh, trying trying to paint himself that way. And that dude has received so many fucking subsidies through various companies over the course of his career. You wouldn't even know his name today if it wasn't for government subsidies. That's a fact. Yeah, that's fucking... In my opinion, there are really two kinds of people living in the modern world. People who see things as they actually are and people who have this fantasy that the world that they live in is a every man for himself personal independence, pure hand of the free market capitalist kind of experience. And it's completely false. There's nothing true about that at all. One of the things about that is that uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. Well, you know what, though? I, one more thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I think it's really cool if you think about it from the perspective of you know, the podcast and our listeners, is we're all such fans and even fanatics for stories, right? We love stories. We love sci-fi. We love stories. That's what we talk about all the time. But it's it's interesting to me that really as a species, there is something that we evolved and we it's in our DNA that we are fanatics for stories, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think what's what I'm seeing, I'm starting to realize because I'm, I, I sit in bed and I'm like, why are we so polarized? Why are we so polarized as a country? And I've just kind of landed recently on the idea that because one group of people believes one story and another group of people believes another story. Some people want to believe that we are, like you're saying, in the Wild West and fuck everyone else. And we don't need each other. And I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to pull my bootstraps, uh, pull myself up on my bootstraps and all that bullshit. Where it's like, yeah, okay, but you're doing that while you're being coddled by a socialist yeah. state. Everything yeah, exactly. you were edu- you were educated in the social, you grew up on a public road, you went to public libraries, you went to a public school, you you know what I mean? Everything around you has coddled you the to be in a socialist you buy at the country. grocery store is subsidized. The gas you yes. put in your car is subsidized. The electricity that's flowing in your house is subsidized. All of that is subsidized. It's all regulated. It's all, that's all social. We don't live in 1800s anymore. It doesn't exist. There are people that do live, you know, homesteaders that live in cabins in Alaska and that kind of thing that really do live that kind of lifestyle. And, you know, more power to you guys. Definitely not hating on that lifestyle. I think, you know, homesteading is fucking cool for sure. But that's a very rare person indeed. You know what I mean? I don't want to do that. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I definitely, you definitely sacrifice tons of like modern conveniences when you do that. You know what I mean? But those people do exist. Those, those people do exist. They're just not the suburban dude with the NRA t-shirt, you know, who, who's literally driving around in an eight-cylinder truck, you know, that he can only afford gas for because the government makes it possible for him to do that and then claiming yeah. to be a libertarian or whatever. I mean, it's just yeah. complete it's, – it's literally delusion. Nothing but delusion here. It's delusion. And the scary, scary thing, I was listening to Mark Marin on his podcast, and I love the quote from him where he was like, those guys are caring and famous podcasters in the world who are claiming to be like this libertarian, you know, they're just carrying water for the right wing. 
That's yeah. what's scary about it. You're just carrying water for the right wing under the guise of, well, I'm a tough guy, libertarian, cult of masculinity, all that bullshit. It's like, man, get real. To me, it seems obvious that there's a plot to get people to hate the government so oh, that sure. they don't support the government in times like these. Like right now, I'm in this sort of mind blown sort of situation where every time I get online, I see conservatives saying things like, oh, well, I agree with Vladimir Putin more than I do Democrats. And I'm like, Ugh. have you lost your fucking mind? Okay, like you do not have to buy into every Democratic tenant. Okay, totally. Democrat, Republican, whatever, two heads of the same snake, in my opinion. But the idea that you're so convinced that the other party is evil, that you're literally willing to support a fascist dictator who's literally invading a free country right now and killing innocent people rather than admit that perhaps you got some of it wrong. Yeah, it's crazy. It's very frustrating right now. And it's very clear that the cause of this is propaganda, Yeah, which is exactly what 1984 is about. Let me get back to Orwell's yeah. real quick biography. Okay, so Orwell was a very idealistic young man and his ideals involved combating fascism. And that was really kind of like the whole story of his life. And when he was young, he went out to fight in the Spanish Civil War, even though he himself was British. Mm. Like he really had no dog in that fight, you know? Mm -hmm. But in his mind, he thought, well, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. I'm going to go do my part. There's a really great story about how while he was on a train to Paris, he had dinner with Henry Miller, the author Henry Miller, who wrote Ugh, Nexus. One of my favorite. And, oh, yeah. yeah he's Tropic, a great, Tropic of Cancer. Tropic yeah. of Cancer. Yeah. And Miller basically said that his idea that he should go fight in the Spanish Civil War out of, for obligation or whatever was sheer stupidity. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then he said that the Englishman's ideas about combating fascism, defending democracy, et cetera, et cetera, were all baloney. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people at the time saw – and, you know, he wasn't the only artist that didn't belong there that went there to participate in that. Hemingway was there fighting, you know, and there were a lot of people there that, you know, kind of came from around the world to take part in that combat. Okay, so while he was there, this goes to show you how inexperienced and how really he didn't belong in, in a war like this. While he's there, he gets shot through the throat. By a sniper. Oh, no way. Way. Fuck. He was six foot two. And in 1930, or whenever exactly that happened, he was considerably taller than all of the other troops there. And they had warned him to not stand against the trench walls because, you know, he would be exposed. But he did it anyway, got shot through the throat, and then ended up in a military hospital. And eventually, you know, after that all happened, he got released from. The armed forces and sent back to Great Britain. Okay. Then he started getting really interested in the goings on of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union, even though a lot of people see the Soviet Union as a really bad actor in you know the long arc of history, it started off with good ideals. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea of the Soviet Union was to topple the bourgeois royalty lifestyle of Russia and set up you know a more fair lifestyle. They did this based on the works of Karl Marx. And when it was happening, when they were doing the Russian Revolution, there were different factions of the communist parties that you know were competing for influence. Mm -hmm. And after Vlad Lenin, who was basically the leader during the revolution, died, there were a couple of his understudies, I guess you'd say, or you know, lesser members of the party 
then competed to be the new person in charge. And really, it came down to two big players. There was, of course, Joseph Stalin, who did, in fact, go on to be the leader of the Soviet Union, and another guy named Leon Trotsky. And these guys had basically opposite views of what communism should be like. And Trotsky was combating to have communism be more like it was, you know, idealistically meant to be, where Mm -hmm. people shared and the class systems were struck down and laborers legitimately owned the means of production. Mm -hmm. And that's really what he was going for. But he just wasn't a strong enough military mind. So he got Mm -hmm. pushed out and exiled from Russia by Stalin, and Stalin ended up taking control of Russia. And we all know the story of Joseph Stalin, very evil person. I think murdered more of his own people than Hitler. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no one. No, you're not going to find anybody that I know defending Joseph Stalin. You know, like I mean, he he was a shitty bad guy. The only good thing he ever did was help America and the rest of the world defeat Hitler. And that's it. That's it. Other than he did that by sending tons of his people through the meat grinder. He'd do things like force people at gunpoint into battle and then shoot anybody who tried to retreat, all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, intentionally created famines that killed millions of people and all sorts of other things. He he was a bad person. So this is the really the, the crux of what created 1984 in George Orwell's mind was this conflict between these people. Yeah, This whole conflict is paralleled pretty much exactly in 1984. Okay, so now let's get to that book. Yeah. that He actually wrote, wrote another book that we're going to mention too before this, but we'll get mm-hmm. back. We'll circle back around to that one. What was that book? Animal Farm? Animal Farm. And, you know, it has a lot of the same themes, but slightly less directly about this particular struggle that is between... Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin. It's such a good book, but I, you know what? When it, it, one of the things, and I'm, I'll start. I'll give you a little uh, just plot summary on 1984, so we go into it. But one of my favorite things about it is that the protagonist of the book is named Winston. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. Okay, so okay, so for, obviously that struck me the first time I read it. I opened it. I was like, "Oh, Winston? Huh? Okay." You know, like don't don't see a lot of that. This most recent time I read it, I did the audiobook. And this is another time, I think I've mentioned this on the show several times already, but audiobooks are books. Full stop. And yeah. anybody who gatekeeps and says you haven't read a book if you only listen to the audiobook, or if you, you haven't reread it if you only listen to the audiobook, spare me. Yeah. Audiobooks are books. You take in the information. I love listening to them after or after i've read or before i read a book i love the book you know what i mean to take it in in a different way is such a cool experience you know because i listened to uh 1984 this time instead of going back and reading it and it was just different it was like you know obviously a lot of time had passed since i had read it last but uh but i i I love audiobooks man i think it's great to get i do think that you know being able to read the book written is helpful for some understanding, mostly so that you can see how things are spelled. And that, mm. that's the biggest difference to me is that when I read it is I'll be listening to an audiobook that I haven't read and be like, wait a second, I have to look up this character's name because I don't know what, what exactly what, they're saying. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? I have to look that up. And that, that does happen from time to time. Keep in mind that when you do audiobooks, that is part of the deal. But anyway, this most recent time, I listened to an audiobook version of 1984. And hearing the word Winston over and over and over and over and over again (laughs) 
with my earbuds in was definitely kind of a trip. You know, my name is a little unusual. It's a little bit of an unusual name. I think I've said this on the show before as well, but when people say, oh, that's an unusual name when I introduce myself, I always say, yeah, most people I meet named Winston are dogs. Because <laughs> I, I, I meet plenty of dogs named Winston. No. So this was a good one. So, so anyways, 1984 takes place in London, right? Or I, yeah. I don't know if they call it London, but it's basically London, right? Do they say like... You're definitely supposed to get the idea that you're in London. They're in Airstrip 1. Okay. I think that's as much definition of the location. And Airstrip 1, I know, is supposed to be England. And the protagonist, Winston Smith, works at the party headquarters. Called the Ministry of Truth. Right. And And, so you must, you have to assume that's in the capital of Airstrip 1. Yeah. So 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 it is. it's London. I think this was, you know, for me, especially when I first read the book, this was like probably my first experience with a dystopian society because everything is just gray. Everything is just meager. There is just the, the, you know, it's bleak. The apartment smells of cabbage. Mm -hmm. Uh, He works in, I love, and it was my first experience with like doublespeak where you had, and this is something that, you know, that other governments have used even up until this day. But uh, doublespeak is like where he worked at the Ministry of Truth. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is what his job was, where he went in every day and sat at a cubicle, is he would rewrite the past. Right. And the idea with the government was if you can control the past, he who controls the past can control the future. Right. And, um, you know, he, he would sit and correct old newspapers so that they reflected the current party lies. And because of that, you know, if anybody went and looked at an old newspaper, they'd see that, oh yeah, maybe I maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe it has been this way all along. Yeah. It was crazy. And there and, and in this world, there were like basically three countries, Oceana, where he was from, Eurasia, and East Asia. Right. And they were always in conflict with these three. And with also within that society that he lived, there was the outer party, there was the inner party, and there were the proles. And the inner party were those that were in kind of like high command of the, the party in Oceana. Um, now, the head of the inner party was a very cult-like figure called Big Brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, you would see posters and everything of Big Brother. And it very much, I've been to Moscow, and it very much reminded me of everywhere, and I've never seen this, Winston, anywhere. Even when we drove through Chechnya, there you would see big, massive billboards of one face, and that was Putin. And it made me it made me think like, man, everywhere you go, what they're trying to let he's trying to let you know is I'm freaking watching you. Right. And so it wasn't it's crazy because, you know, this kind of thing is real. Right. Oh, yeah. It is real. It's how it was in uh, Soviet Russia during Stalin's reign as well. I mean, Stalin's oh, face was every. in fact, when they describe Big Brother's face. It sounds like they're describing Joseph Stalin. I mean, they say big, bushy mustache, dead-eyed stare. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and so the 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 big brother 
And the inner party with their goal of this totalitarian regime was not just to control what you did, but it was actually to control what you even think. And so they had, uh, they had the concept of thought crime and they had thought police. And inside of Winston's apartment and inside of every apartment, they had a telescreen that was on 24-7. And they not only thought control what you thought, they controlled what you, they wanted to control what you felt. You weren't even allowed to have relationships or sex, right? Right. And every, they would have these like daily two minutes of hate and hate week. Okay, you're, you're going a little fast because every time you mention one of these things, I want to talk about the parallels in society. Like <laughs> no, every go through thing. it. <laughs> okay, so I was especially struck by the two minutes of hate mm-hmm. because that is Fox News. Ah. Fox News is that. It is nothing but alarmist, anger-inducing propaganda and rhetoric. It is, look at all these things you're supposed to be mad about. And that is constantly all that happens on that channel. You know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I've recognized that the entire time that channel has been a thing. And it pisses me off so bad because it's because it's been so effective and just lifted straight out of the pages of 1984. It's deformed the way all of the rest of all other news is delivered. It's yeah, for sure. The time of a person calmly and rationally reading you the news without trying to instill a dramatic emotional response is gone. It is behind us. It might, hopefully, it's in front of us again, too, and we'll get back to that. But because of Fox News, that's completely changed. Like now, you can't watch the news without seeing somebody turn pink in the face because they're so mad about some trivial bullshit that they made up. You know, there's a fucking crisis at the southern border, et cetera, et cetera. Not that the southern border is in great shape or anything. That's just an example. But there's so many examples. Oh, gay people want to get married. You know, Obama's wearing a brown suit or whatever the fuck bullshit they have to make you mad about nonsense. And they've been doing it for, what, 25 years, 30 years? Yeah. And and, and I, I don't think – I think we're getting to the age now where there are so many people that – did, weren't alive when news wasn't like this, that they don't understand yeah, that yeah. opinion news was not a thing. It was not a thing. Yeah. It might have been slanted one way or another or whatever. It was never liberal enough for me. You know, I, I was always complaining even back in the day, like, this is so corporate bullshit and blah, blah, blah. Right. I was so mistaken <laughs> with how yeah. far things could go, you know? It hasn't changed any. It just seems like it gets worse and worse and worse because for a long time, Fox News, even though they had their bullshit artists on there, it was for the most part still news. Again, slanted and you know altered to become propaganda. But nowadays, it's not even close to that. Now they've got Tucker Carlson, who's one of the biggest stars on that show, literally had to argue in court that no reasonable person would believe that what he was saying was true in order to to get out of lawsuits. Successfully, he successfully argued this. And meanwhile, while that's happening, every person watching Fox News these days, obviously not every person, clearly lots of people watch it for the sake of seeing the other side, lots of other things, but everybody watching it takes everything that clown says at face value. And it creates this incredibly distorted, fantastical, false view of reality. Yeah. 
not just false from my perspective as a leftist leaning person, but demonstrably false. He's saying things that are demonstrably untrue and can be proved to be untrue unless you argue that no reasonable person would really believe it. And that's what they had to do. Rage sells, man. Rage sells, right? <laughs> Rage does sell. Rage does sell. And, you know, obviously I'm over here getting all worked up too. So, so it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's so crazy. Okay, so Winston Smith, not this Winston, the other Winston, lives in this life where he works for the outer party. He works for the party, but he's a member of the outer yeah. party. And correcting, I'm using air quotes here, old uh, news stories for the Times, which is the only news source. And while he's doing that, he is secretly a thought criminal. He spends his time thinking, oh, there's so much wrong with this. The, the world is so drab and gray and I'm so unhappy and there's got to be more to life than this. And as the book goes on, he starts to slowly act on those thoughts. He uh, starts having an illicit affair with one of his coworkers, a woman named Julia. And he's so happy to learn that she does this kind of thing all the time because he's just so excited about the idea that someone could be sexual, that someone could be openly sexual. Yeah, she and that she way, slips him a note, remember, and it says, I, I love right? you. And he's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he's never even talked to her. And she just slips him a note that says, I love you. And it was so cool. One of my favorite like uh, things in the book was how he bought that little diary and he would mm -hmm. just like turn his back from the television screen in his apartment and just slowly start to write and just write writing his thoughts was such a dangerous thing right it's so right. hard for us to fathom and i think that orwell did such a great job of bringing at least me into that world where i'm like oh my god it is terrifying what are you doing why are you doing this right oh mm -hmm. It becomes such a risk, you know what I mean? Because in the story of 1984 in Oceania, the penalty for every crime basically is death. <laughs> they don't have trials and defense and that kind of thing. It's completely authoritarian and whatever Big Brother commands is correct. And, you know, people obey the government and the party line just out of at least members of the party do. Yeah. That's really who the party tries to control is just members of the party, especially members of the outer party. Mm -hmm. And okay, there's also the proletariat, the proles, which we mentioned briefly. And they're sort of like the large bulk of the population. And in order to keep them from hating the society so much and rising up, they offer them small consolations. Like they get to drink beer. They're kind of like members, these outcasts, right? Like where they're right, like, yeah, they, yeah, they don't get any of the benefits of living in the inner party, but they get to have beer and they get to talk in a much more expressive way. Mm -hmm. And the party doesn't mess with them because they also have no power or influence at all. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite parts of that is, is that is such a um, great observation that the number, the people, it's like 85% of the population have the power to crush the party. If only they could come together with that goal in mind, but they're just constantly distracted by sports and beer and having babies and being poor. And they're fed the old patriotic stuff too, so that they 
through singing patriotic songs and seeing, you know, Big Brother's face on everything, even if they do disagree with certain things about the way the world is being run, they still have an embedded sense of patriotism that prevents them from doing too much damage to the structure of society. Yeah, it's it's crazy because it's so that parallel for our society is there's such a strategy in the <laughs> in the book, right, of divide, mm-hmm. divide and distract. Divide and distract, yeah. divide and distract. Yeah. It's very fast. It couldn't be more applicable to the way modern life is. It's dangerous and it's scary. Like living in the world we live in now, is a, it's scary. It scares me all the time. Just knowing that protesters could be picked up in black vans by dudes in masks and carried off and never fucking seen from again, which happened in America only yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people just completely forgotten about that now because, you know, we got the Super Bowl and the Grammys and whatever the hell else. Dude, we went through a fucking scary time, man. That that it, when all that was happening with the Patriot Act, it was scary time. You know what I do think of also though is is is, you know, again, it was so terrifying. You know, they were always watched in the book. And everything they did, there were surveillance and all that shit. What really mm-hmm. I think about sometimes is that, you know, if when we look back if some alien culture or some future, you know, if they're looking and they're saying, what was it like to be a human being at this time in the world? Mm-hmm. The reality is there there's only 330 million people in the United States and a few more in Western Europe. But the bulk of people live in China and they live in Russia and they live... If right. In China, everywhere you go, there is surveillance. Everywhere you go, if you you have a social score that is based on what you buy and who you speak to and what you post and where you work, and you know, and if that social score drops, you can't buy a ticket, you can't travel, and eventually you will get picked up there also. And if you're going to yeah. protest, look at the Uyghurs. Look at you're going to be put in camps just like Winston was in 1984. That's fucking what the reality of what it means to be human is in the current world. You know, right? Okay. So the problem is, is that okay? That does exist, and it's true. It really, really is true. And I'm going to parallel this back to the book too. The thing about that is our leaders or our would-be leaders point at that society and say, if you want to be protected from that, you have to let me be in charge. And then once they're in charge, they want to do the same goddamn thing, you know, because being in charge, you know, you want to have power, absolute power. And this is very similar in that way to the Oceania versus East Asia versus Eurasia, constant, continuous conflict that goes on in the book. Especially because if you look at it, we were supporting Saddam Hussein, right? Right. He was our ally against Iran. Mm -hmm. And then we turned against him and we supported and trained Osama bin Laden. And then we turn, you know, these things are, these things happen even in Western democracy. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. you know, while the ideals of democracy are there and, you know, and don't get me wrong, thankfully, I'm knocking on wood here. Thankfully, America is still considerably more democratic than lots of these other places for the time being, at least. It, you know, goes back and forth. We elect leaders that we think will move us in the right direction and they betray us constantly. Mm-hmm. I honestly can say we haven't had a president that I thought literally had the best intentions for regular people in my entire life. 
Like that's it's never crazy. happened. The only right. president I like before, just before I was born, Jimmy Carter was president. And I do believe that's what he wanted. And I base that on all of the acts he's done since he left the presidency. But yeah, if you ask anybody on the right, they'll say, they'll call him the weakest president of all time, you know, a weak failure or whatever. But because he didn't try to rule with an iron fist, you know, obviously not all the presidents are trying to rule with an iron fist. You've got your Clintons and what have you. But that authoritarian leadership is a part of American society, too. I mean, without question, look at Donald Trump being the president, for fuck's sake. Look at look at NSA spying under, you know, illegal wiretapping of Americans. I mean, we are only protected by the rule of law. Yeah, you know, and, it's, and they, and they, they can it. subvert it easily. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they can, yeah, they, and they did under yeah. Obama. It's like, yeah, that, under yeah Obama. it's insane. Yeah, there's the, Obama's a great example of the idea that this person will carry us away from the things that are frightening us and carries us exactly into it. Exactly into it. Yeah, it's terrifying. As far as I'm concerned, all of our presidents so far in my life, I, I was born in 83. So it's been Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, uh, Obama and Trump and Biden. Those have been the presidents of my life. And fuck all of yeah. them. Like, seriously. Fuck all of them. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I see the same way. Yeah. I've got no love for any of those people. No. And it's so funny to me when people are like, oh, can't you see that the Republican presidents were good? Or can't you see that the Democratic presidents were good? And I'm like, you are delusional, dude. Yeah. Come on, man. No, they're not. Has the police become a giant military industrial complex more and more and more and more under every single president? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's no question. You can go you can look it up yourself. You know, what I mean, go go look this stuff up. They're armed in ways that they never they're a military now. It's yeah, they're terrifying. a military. And you know, what started yeah. off as slave catching thugs. And that's how the police force in America began, slowly evolved over time to be a gang and then a fucking army. It is what it is, but the paramilitary presence of the police is, you know, obviously um, there's been some backlash to that in the past few years. And police are starting to be held accountable and people are saying, no, you can't just execute people, dude. No. Yeah, because of God, because thank God, because of cell phones. Yeah, but it's because of cell cell phones. Yeah, if we didn't have cell phones, you could forget it. Nothing would change. It's crazy. So so anyways, he meets Julia. She slips him an I love you note. They rent a room over a pawn shop and they start having sex. Yeah. Right? And it gets steamy and it's like, oh, yeah, go Winston, go Winston. <laughs> until, until they fucking get caught and arrested and taken to the Ministry of Love for Rehabilitation. Now, I, I, here, I want to name these four ministries because okay. they're so yes. cool. The, you've got the Ministry of Truth, which includes all forms of media, entertainment, and the arts. And they're all you lies. Got, yes, exactly. you got the Ministry of Peace, where they control all aspects of war in the military. Right. Then you got the mil- Ministry of Love, which is the judicial system. And then you got the the Ministry of Plenty, which is they handle the economic affairs, which for most people in Oceania is extreme bleak poverty. So I love that. Uh- <laughs> that's exactly it, man. The euphemisms. That's what struck me when I heard the words Patriot Act back in the day. And I was like, exactly. Oh my, oh my God. Exactly, it's, it's, right? the, it's the ministry of peace over here. <laughs> it's like exactly that. Because they know they're not going to fucking pass something and get support. If it says, you know, this is, we're going to spy and abduct uh, American citizens off the streets act. 
You know what I mean? And keep whoever we label as a terrorist in a prison indefinitely without any sort of trial. Yeah, with no freaking... Also, yeah. it's cool if we torture them. That's fine, too. Yeah. Like Guantanamo. It's, you know, Room 101. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like you're taken there. You have no recourse at all. You're completely at the mercy of the people there, and they can do whatever they want. They can torture you. They can humiliate you. You can't call anybody to your defense. If you're accused of a crime, you're fucked. That's it. You know what I mean? And that that is like in glaring contrast to the supposed principles of our entire country. And it was just like a thing that this just happened, and they were cool with it. And every Americans were like, well, yeah, I guess. We don't like Muslims, so I guess that's cool. Yeah, and being a lawyer, I will say, and studying constitutional law for so many years, it is so critical that without any type of fucking shaded glasses, we just call it like it is. This is a violation of the rule of law. I don't care what the fuck your, your objective is. I don't care who the person is. You cannot allow that to happen because once it starts happening to you, it can start happening to me. Once it starts happening to me, it can start happening to you. And I think you're right. I think that people get so blinded. They're like, well, it's not me. It's not you yet. It's not you yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something that I, I think I, as I w- was in law school and studying for years that I had to really start, they really drilled it into us that if this starts to erode, it will be bad for all of us. And we've seen that start to happen like with the Patriot Act and especially in times of stress and in times of war. The poem I was thinking of is by Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller and it goes like this. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not, did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And, you know... Wow, that's heavy, man. And, <laughs> and you know, that's really like at the heart of what all this is about, you know? And okay, so a point I was going to make earlier is this. The fear of a tyrannical authoritarian government that controls all aspects of our life, which is not just a fear, it is a reality in certain parts of the world and is part of our reality here in America, drives people to believe that they can operate and that they're better off without a government because all government is evil. And that's at the heart of the propaganda that's being fed to people on the right here in the United States. No government is better. You know, uh, we could do it on our own. We don't need any government. They're being fed this while they're being supported by government incentives. Yeah, and it's being pumped out by right-wing think tanks that are being, you know, funded by, you know, billionaires like the Koch brothers. Right. And the reason is, is because the less government the more money they're going to make. The exactly. bigger the share of the pie that they can get. Yeah. But you bet your ass that they're, they've are they got their lobbyists up on freaking the hill, passing laws and degrading regulations that keep them from poisoning your water and poisoning your air and you know paying you less, et cetera, et cetera. It's fucking mad. This leads perfectly into the, my next point. What a perfect segue. Okay. One of the best parts of 1984 is that Winston is given a copy of The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by the enemy of the party, Emmanuel Goldstein. Mm -hmm. And in short, it's kind of a really interesting read, but 
In short, the idea is that oligarchs, once they become oligarchs, will combine their forces to subdue everyone else and gain as much power as possible. And boy, oh boy, is that happening now. The Koch brothers? Sure. What's his nuts that owns uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, Vladimir Putin, and all of his clown college Russian oligarchs? It's happening all over the world, and it never really stopped happening. No. It's been happening since forever. I mean, they used to call themselves dukes and kings and everything, and now they call themselves billionaires or whatever. C- or CEOs or, or whatever CEOs. you want to call it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Really, they're just power traders who have the one thing in our society that makes them powerful, and that is capital. Yeah. And that is what I, I, that is where if you're not educated, it's so easy to start arguing about politics with, and if you don't understand history and you don't understand that there is only one enemy, the problem is, and that enemy is the 1%. Right. The problem is, is America is so perfectly built because it's built on the story. Remember, we were talking earlier about how mm-hmm. important story is. Well, the story in America or in, I guess, other Western countries is one day you too, if you work hard enough, can be part of the 1%. Yeah. So you don't want to fight us. Because one day you'll be here and you'll have your private jet and you'll have your yachts and you'll have this, this, and this. And if you change that, then you won't get it. And so people are like, oh, get, let them pass. Let them pass. Who cares if he has 280 billion? The problem is there's only a finite amount of GDP that is created in a country per year. And the question is, how is that going to be distributed? Is it going to be, it is finite. Is it going to be distributed to a few people or are we going to live in a more egalitarian society? Well, this is a really great uh, – another quote that I have for that one by John Steinbeck who said that socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as exploited proletariat but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Exactly. I love that quote. I've heard that before. That's uh, – Because they're not a victim of the oligarchs. They're just not there yet. And if you just give them enough time, <laughs> if you just give them enough generations, I guess is what their idea is. It's the carrot being dangled in front of them. And that's such a 1984 thing too. I know, dude. It's one of the reasons, man, where I that I so don't like the whole ethos of these prophets of grind, I call them, you know, where mm-hmm. they're out there oh, saying, yeah. you just need to grind harder and grind harder. And I'm like, man, I don't want to grind harder. I want to surf. I want yeah. to hang out. I, yeah. want, to, I, I want only to create one art. time. I only get to live yeah. once. Hard work is one thing. You know, hard work is, you know, it, it's beneficial. You know what I mean? But work hard for yourself. Don't work hard to climb some fucking corporate ladder. Or and, and don't do it. Don't do it 12 hours a day and kill yourself when wake yeah. up at 60, 60 and go, oh my God, what did I do besides work? You know? Well, you, when like, I hear that, when I hear people being like, oh yeah, well, I worked 80 hours a week last week. And I'm like, that sucks. You know, (laughs) bummer for you. You know what I mean? Cool. Throwing your, you're literally flushing your life down the toilet. At the end, you have money, maybe, you know, I mean, if you, everything works out for you, you have money and you look back at the memories of your life and you had no fucking enjoyment. You know, you had no love, you you know what I mean? Like all the things you sacrifice so that you could have money at the end of your life. And then when you die, you don't have any more fucking money. Because you're dead. Yeah. You can't take it with you. I'm not arguing that you should be poor by nature, that you shouldn't you know, strive to better yourself at all. You know what I mean? But there is a balance. 
Yeah, and that balance should, for me, should teeter towards less stress and more surf. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, gosh, man, it's such a, it's it's so insidious. Anyway, so they, this last part, I freaking love. So they take them to the Ministry of Love for Rehabilitation and they freaking torture <laughs> Winston and they beat him and they break his bones and eventually they take him to room 101 mm. <laughs> and inside of run one room 101 lies your worst fears yeah and i'll let you tell them what winston's biggest fear was well it turns out for winston which you know this is pretty fucking scary for anybody i'd say but for winston how they finally cracked him they beat him and they tortured him and they humiliated him and did everything they could to try to finally break him. And okay, one thing you have to understand about breaking somebody in the reality of 1984 is not just to get them to say what you want them to say, because words are just surface. You have to get them to think what you want them to think. So after everything, they try everything on Winston, and finally they get it by this contraption where they have starving rats at the end of a cage and the cage fits up to winston smith's face and uh the threat is that they're going to open the cage and have the hungry starving rats gnaw through his face and they know that his biggest fear is rats because they know <laughs> everything about him because of constant yeah. surveillance yeah. and uh, this finally makes him crack and there's no nobody's saying that 1984 is a happy book but most people don't realize how fucked up 1984 is Whew, because man. all this awful stuff happens throughout the book. But the worst, absolute worst thing of all happens at the very last line of the book. And that's when Winston Smith realizes after all of this has happened to him that he now loves Big Brother. Yeah. And it is such a chilling horrifying way to end the book because he sees julia when they're both out and he realizes like he can't love her anymore mm -hmm. you know instead he loves big brother it's like mm -hmm. whoa oh my gosh well you know what dude you we had a goal we were gonna hit one hour and we just hit one freaking hour perfect that perfect. was perfect timing this, this, uh, is, this is one of those ones that we probably could talk about forever and ever and ever but it, uh, it, it would just turn into i feel like it would just turn into us ranting a little bit we, <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't read 1984 recently read it again read it again or read it for the first time if you've never read it it is so eye-opening and let me tell you 1984 isn't Twitter kicking Donald Trump off for you know violating their terms of service. And anybody who says that's downright Orwellian is a fucking idiot. That's not what it's about, dude. It's about every aspect of a private citizen's life being completely controlled by fascists. And uh, you know, minimalizing it by saying that, oh, he's not allowed to say any kind of bullshit he wants to on this person's private platform. And his punishment for that is he's no longer allowed to use that platform. Is Orwellian? You yeah, don't I, I, understand. I highly the recommend depth of this book. Full yeah, stop. I highly recommend you read this book and then watch. Uh, I think there was a Vice documentary on surveillance in China, and it's yeah. fucking staggering. You're like, what? Yeah. All right. Well, that was freaking awesome, man. Yeah, that was I'm a good so one, stoked. man. 
I know. I this a hey, just letting you know. I just started watching um, Raised by Wolves, uh, the second the season. season. I don't, yeah, dude. I haven't it watched it yet. But- hardcore sci-fi. I it is one of the most hardcore sci-fi's. And let me explain what I mean by that. There is almost very little like um, correlation with our own society. Very little. It doesn't right. take place on Earth. It's so freaking out there. It is so good. I am so digging that. Um, so, yeah, it was good. Are you, are you watching anything good? Uh, let's see. Uh, I watched all of Peacemaker, which was... Oh, how was that? I haven't seen that. Hysterical. Funny as hell. Is it funny? <laughs> uh, it's su- su- super fun and funny. It's definitely, you know, popcorn entertainment, but it's it's fun. I've been watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine now. I finally made it all the way through uh, Next Gen again. Uh, so I'm I'm on to DS9 again. You know, I watched all this stuff when I was a teenager and episodes here and there uh, as an adult. But I'm, I'm trying to go through every Star Trek series all the way from beginning to end. It, you know, that's kind of an undertaking. Yeah. It's the best, dude. It's we're such Trek nerds. It's yeah, we're such Trek nerds. <laughs> We've it's, too bad. it's too bad we already did a Star Trek episode. Cause... I know, right? Okay, well, no. uh, you know why? You know why? Because every other sci-fi is is a bummer, you know. And Star Trek, I is know. Like, and, Star Trek, and I, I love it. I love you know. I love stuff that depresses me. I love reading 1984 and watching Raised by Wolves and all that stuff. But you could still get the same sort of sci-fi feel and then get a sense of hope. When you watch Star Trek, and that's kind of rare, kind of rare. No, it's good. Also, a one one more thing: if anybody's looking for a book, I just finished *The Insecure Mind of Sergey Karev* by Eric Silber, and that was freaking really, really cool sci-fi. And now, say it again for me. It's it's what's the title? It's called *The Insecure Mind of Sergey Karev*. Okay, Karev. It's really good. It's All pure right. sci-fi. Eric Silbert, and also I'm now back on, I put it down for a little bit, but Neil Stevenson's uh, Seven Eves, and that's okay. good too. So those- I'm uh, sticking with my all-time favorite. And I'm, I'm trying to get every Philip K. Dick book read, and there was one of his like more popular books that I hadn't read, so I just about finished with Clans of the Alphane Moon. How is it? It's very much like all of Philip K. Dick's other books. His formulas are sort of redundant. But the themes that he explores mm-hmm. in every book are really interesting. And this one's really cool. It's about an uh, alien moon where Earthlings were sent that had uh, psychiatric problems and then a, kind of abandoned. And then years later, they've sort of developed their own society where different mental illnesses are represented by different – like are there, they form different factions based on their mental illnesses. Oh. And it's it's real wild. And you know, mental illness is a big part of his uh, writing. And this, this one really takes it head on. Wow. That sounds awesome. Man. All right. All right. Until next time, brother. Right. That's awesome. I, I am. Uh, I got my plane ticket for the UK. I'm leaving on March 15th, bar nothing else happening. I've sold the van and uh, I'll be in the UK for probably three weeks and then I'm going to Sicily. Sweet. So Let's try to record before you leave. For sure. Okay, cool. All right, y'all. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to us and uh, we'll see you next time. Adios. Later, brother. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full color, ad free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci Fi Mag. Also, 
You can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 